You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. As we've been going through the book of Philippians, this has been a remarkable passage. And as we work towards the end of chapter 3 of Philippians, we're going to begin uh, in where I left off in verse 17, and we're going to be looking at 17 through 20. I want to say before we get started that this book is considered the book of joy, and we know the history. We know that Paul had penned this book while incarcerated in Rome under house arrest. And we know that he looked forward to a reunion with the saints in Philippi, even though he had the potential of facing death. His heart was full of joy. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ had done, but who Jesus Christ is. He has a hope that we should all have in Christ. This passage, as we work through it, is illuminating. And I want to ask that we take a moment in prayer before we begin and just allow God to speak through his word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this day for your grace, your provision, and the glory that you have in our midst. We thank you for this body, the many believers that you have brought to this local fellowship. We just praise you and thank you for it. We continue to pray for those who are afflicted, and we praise you for how you have blessed us to come together on behalf of our brothers that are suffering and sisters. And we thank you for those that uh, celebrated with Brian Ashby and his family last night. We just give you praise for what you do through affliction. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we left off in verse 17. I'm going to read the text so we can pull this together and just pick up where we left off last time. Beginning with verse 17 in chapter 3 of Philippians. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state 
into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What a glorious text this is. Paul, in giving this uh, exhortation to the believers in Philippi, not only to live according to the pattern that they witnessed in Paul himself, as well as Timothy and Epaphroditus, and perhaps even the other deacons and elders who were in the body of believers in Philippi. They wanted to follow that example. For us to look at those who have uh, given their lives to Christ, following those who live daily for him, is an example to set for all the believers to follow. We recognize that Paul was not perfect. If he was, it wouldn't be a good example to follow because we saw how he was able to overcome the areas in which he stumbled or fell. He was delivered from the Judaism that he had been entrapped in. He recognized how foolish and how much all he had tried to do through the law that he considered it all as rubbish, worthless. And now, he wants to give these believers a warning. He's so concerned about them being led astray by those who are enemies of the cross. A warning which all believers should take heed. The apostle continuing his urgent appeal and showing as well as deep concern for the possible negative influence that these, which he calls, enemies of the cross. There were some who professed to be Christians amongst the believers in Philippi. They not only deceived themselves, but they also had a very dangerous influence on those who were true believers in Philippi, perhaps the younger believers, less discerning. <clears throat> they also influenced the unconverted in Philippi and hindered them becoming, from becoming followers of Christ. We know that those that are called, they will also respond to the gospel of Christ. But these were enemies of the gospel. They hated the gospel, though they posed, some of them trying to pose as Christians. This is a warning for us throughout the church age. Today, it's probably more prevalent because the gospel has spread throughout the world, and now there are many that are enemies of the cross. When Paul says there were many he referred to many in Philippi. However, some of them may be trans transients. Those that came in for a while, tried to influence in a negative way the body there, and this went on to other areas to try to carry that heresy and attack on the believers of Jesus Christ. Some remained there, and Paul wanted to warn the people of these dangerous enemies. 
The apostle clearly, early on in this epistle, had given an admonition to the Philippians. In the first chapter, in verses 27 and 28, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, the opponents, the enemies of the cross, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that, too, from God. In chapter 3, in verses 1 and 2, the apostle warns the believers once again this way, <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. And then he goes right in to the warning, right at the beginning of chapter 3. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. These were the Judaizers that Paul had identified and warned them about. In verse 18, the apostle shows how sincere and how loving and how compassionate his deep concern and emotional expression of how great is love for these Philippian believers. He continues to admonish these menaces these individuals whom the apostle called the enemies of the cross. He not only considered these individuals enemies, but also deceivers. They would try to bring a false concept of what Christianity should be. They were liars and they were deceivers. And they themselves were deceived and following after their father, Satan. Paul shows his pastor's heart here for his love for flock and his concern for their well-being, desiring to protect these saints from those enemies of Jesus Christ. Whoever these individuals were, Paul considered them a menacing concern. Enemies, which could attempt to hinder the walk of those followers of Christ in Philippi. Throughout church history, there have been many false teachers, many enemies of the cross, many haters of Christ, haters of the gospel. And sometimes they disguise themselves. In 2 Corinthians, which Cornell will get to, I would say in a few months, in chapter 11, Verse 14, he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. These enemies were sometimes outwardly seeming to share the same pursuit of following Christ. They were deceptive, they would play the game, and they would try to deceive these individuals into following them rather than pursuing holiness and pursuing Christ. <clears throat> the New Testament shows many areas in which this has been the case. When Paul's parting instructions, he was giving some admonition to the elders 
of the church of Ephesus in the book of Acts. And he said this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which is purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. That was Acts 20, 28. John gives us several warnings in his epistles. He says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know, the Spirit of God and every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. That's 1 John 4, 1 through 3. In his second epistle, he gives another admonition. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. That's in 2 John 7. Sadly, there seems to be a real apathy amongst believers in this country. And as a result of poor teaching and a lack of solid biblical grounding, many lack biblical discernment. People have to be grounded because how would you know how to discern between a true believer and one who is an enemy of the cross through the Word of God? That's our measure, and that's the only way that we can be discerning and equipped to be able to discern these enemies of the cross. Unlike the godly examples in verse 17, the conduct of false teachers should never be imitated, but rather exposed for what they are. Paul does not consider these just enemies, but a definite article, enemies of the cross of Christ. If the friends of the cross are those who show in their lives that their daily conduct reflects the true essence of their salvation and that they are truly children of God, who by their very testimony openly expose the evil deeds of those who are enemies of the cross. Now, oftentimes we come across individuals that claim to be Christians, and yet their conduct belies that fact. They may do all the things that appear outwardly on a Sunday morning. They may attend various and participate in various elements of the universal or the 
collective church and gathering on Sunday, and yet their lives do not reflect a reform, uh, complete transformation. When we are regenerated, we're a new creation. All things have passed. All things are becoming new. We are God's children and we're called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verse 19, and he says this, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. This end is the fruit of their wicked lives. In Romans 6.21, Paul said this to the church of Rome, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. These deceivers, those professing Christians, were living a life and doing things that they're now ashamed of. Destruction. The word destruction is doesn't mean annihilation. That's taught by many heretical and cult churches. When you die, you are there's a annihilation of the soul and body. That's not what the scriptures teach us. We shall go on either into glory are those who reject the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving death on a cross, those will go to eternal destruction. Those who have rejected the only truth of salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ. Their end comes from the word telos. It refers to their ultimate destiny. The ultimate destiny of all these false teachers who reject the cross is eternal destruction. Now, that's not taught a lot throughout the country in many churches. In fact, they don't even acknowledge sin in many of these seeker-sensitive movements. They won't identify sin. And if you do not identify sin and you do not realize that you are a sinner, there's no need for a Savior. What are you being saved from? It is from our sin. Many have denied that and call themselves Christians. In Matthew 25, verse 46, the Lord says this, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's Matthew 25, 46. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul said this, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Think about that. That should be an impetus for all of us 
to have compassion on those that are lost. We don't take lightly false teachers. We identify them and we point them out. When we identify somebody as a false teacher, you let the flock know so that they are warned. If anyone has denied the sufficiency of Christ's redeeming work on the cross and is in some way trusting in their own works, they are not saved. Think about that. How many people add something to the gospel? I believe in Jesus Christ. He died for my sin. And I went forth and was baptized in order to be saved. Baptismal regeneration? No. That's heretical. If we add anything to the work of Christ, it's heresy and you'll be damned forever. We cannot add anything to the gospel or take away anything. James says it this way. You see, a man is justified by works and not by faith. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works is dead. Now, You notice that he wasn't commending Rahab for lying, but she was used to, and she did obey, to help those that were fleeing. We have to understand, when a person's saved, his conduct will reflect that of his salvation. That is the sanctifying process, the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not perfect. We never will be on this side. The doctrine of perfectionism, Paul rebuked that earlier in this chapter. Yet we keep pressing on to be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second part in 319, whose God is their appetite. Appetite translates from a, a word which means the advent abdomen, particularly the stomach. In this verse, it's used metaphorically to refer to the unrestrained fleshly bodily desires, as in 1 Corinthians 6.13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. We are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. We are partakers of the divine nature. Think about all that we are in Christ. We were born from above, not below. What should our lives reflect in everything that we do? In our thoughts, our behavior, our actions. We're not perfect, but when we sin, if we don't acknowledge that and we harbor it, 
we break communion and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Short accounts with sin. Paul wanted people to understand, James wanted people to understand, all the apostles that wrote their epistles wanted people to understand who they are in Christ. We sometimes just think, well, I'm saved, and I'll spend eternity with Christ. That's true if you're a true believer. But we should be transformed individuals, not just people who are saved and going to heaven. We should reflect Christ in our lives with humility, with love for others, with an open, teachable heart towards Christ, not only receiving the word eagerly, but searching those things to be sure they're true. Be a Berean in our reception of truth. Study God's word, but also practice. The false teachers will be condemned because they do not worship God, but rather worship their sensual desires. Instead of striving <clears throat> excuse me, to keep their physical appetites under control and realizing that our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 19, <clears throat> verses chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? Think about that part of that verse. We're not our own individuals any longer. We were bought with a price. What was the price? The precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Yes, we still remain in this fleshly body that's capable of sinning, and we're not perfect, but we should be growing in our knowledge of Christ and in our practice of God's Word, submitted to God's Holy Spirit. <clears throat> These people, the enemies of the cross, worshipped their sensual desires, surrendered themselves to gluttony and licentiousness, unrestrained sin. They worship their fleshly nature. Paul goes on to say, whose glory is in their shame. These false teachers boasted in the very thing that brought them shame. They practiced the very things that brought them shame. This form of wickedness is wretched conduct before a holy God. God hates sin. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, suffered and died to pay the penalty for sin for all those who place their saving faith in him. That saving faith is also a gift of God. Everything that we have in Christ, beginning to end, God begins it, God works in us, conforming us to his image, and God is the one that glorifies from start to finish. 
It's a complete work of our Lord. Nothing that we have is not a gift from God. Salvation is His gift to us, all those who place their faith in them. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even amongst the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the first five verses. Paul was addressing the immorality that was in the church. Immorality, or any sin that's ongoing from a believer in a local church, should be corrected. There should be discipline, but discipline only to bring them to a place of repentance. There's a process. If a brother is in a snare, those who are spiritual, go to him in gentleness and meekness, looking to yourself, lest you too fall. So when we see a brother stumbling or in a snare, we should come alongside, brother or sister. A woman should come alongside, a sister, a man to the brother. We should have the freedom and the love for those who are in a snare enough to help restore them. That's the whole purpose of discipline. It's not to shame them other than to shame them to a point of repentance. The process is done in love. Paul goes on in verse 19, he said, Who set their minds on earthly things. The focus of these false teachers was their earthly pursuits. This was an evidence that they weren't saved. The Apostle John gives us another clear admonition in 1 John 2.15. He says this, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when he's talking about somebody loving the world, it's not the created world. It's talking about the world system, the world philosophy led by the God of this world, Satan. Anyone who embraces the world philosophy is not a child of God. In the letter to Colossians, the apostle gave this declarative statement. The Judaizers focus on their festivals, ceremonies, feasts, and sacrifices, as well as new moons, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All the ceremonial practices of the Old Testament was just a shadow, a picture of what was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's foreseen from Genesis to the New Testament through Revelation. He's pictured throughout the Old Testament and New. The enemies of the cross added to the gospel and tried to take something away. They were trying to be legalist. Paul had already dealt with some of them, the Judaizers, dogs. Paul warns that they should never be imitated.
In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on flesh, the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. In <clears throat> those that are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul's making a distinction. Those in the spirit, in the spirit of God, are believers. Those not in the spirit are unbelievers. I know that in some of the Arminian teaching, they utilize this, and they try to interpret this verse as somebody that's carnal in their behavior. That's not an accurate interpretation. Paul is making a distinction between those that are God's and those that are in the flesh, unbelievers. Paul goes on in, one, <clears throat> in verse 9 and gives this clear teaching to make that distinction in Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Clear. Paul makes his own clarification. There's no way to refute it. Any other teaching would not be accurate from the Word of God. <clears throat> from the letter to the Philippians and Chapter 3, verse 19, the apostle has given a vivid description of those who are an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ, who should be recognized as who they truly are. We should identify those individuals, and we should point out their error and also address those that are trying to pose as Christians and trying to be an enemy of the cross. Yes, Brian. I use the New King James. Exactly. I want to, for the sake of this recording, point out that uh, Brian just brought to us uh, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, the parallel passage says the same thing. He identifies those that are enemies of Christ. As we consider these various descriptions that Paul gives those who are the enemies of the cross, as well as enemies of the followers of Christ, we should recognize that they're not believers and bring admonition and correction, as the parallel passage in chapter 16 of Romans gives us as well. If they're claiming to be believers, we can offer the clear teaching of the gospel, recognizing that they are lost and destined for eternal destruction. That's a sign of love. Not to criticize them or try to belittle them, but to point them to truth, rebuke, admonish, correct, and instruct in righteousness. Don't accept false teaching. Identify it. Point it out. 
If the individual is an enemy of the cross, he is attacking the Lord Jesus Christ in all the body of Christ. Now in verses 20 and 21, I'm going to begin these, but I can't possibly, in the time remaining, give adequate uh, clarity and explain these verses as they should be. These verses, I have to just ponder, and I really encourage you to examine. I want to read them to you, and we'll begin to look at them. In verse 20, Paul says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, I want us to ponder something here because, as I said, I'm going to pick up on this portion next time that I teach in this passage. Paul is telling us who we are here. We sometimes just think of ourselves, or we're Christians. We have a moral code, the Word of God. But we make a big error trying to put practice this moral code from the Word of God and forget that we are partakers of the divine nature. We could become just as the Judaizers. Well, we're following God's word, which we should be. It's a reflection. Our conduct is a reflection of our salvation. But it's much deeper than that. We are children of God. And we should be light to the world. Do we present that light in our conduct, in our lives, in our thought life, in our speech? That's a challenge to all of us. We need to consider who we are in Christ. I'm not talking about the aberrant teaching of trying to claim that we can do the sign gifts. That is past. But we need to understand that we are in pursuit of Christ's righteousness. We are his children indwelt by a holy, perfect God. He wants us to reflect that in our conduct. So we don't want to make it in the sense of trying to attempt to follow God's word. We can't do that apart from God's spirit. But we want to recognize who we are as God's children, partakers of his divine nature. Do we reflect that in our thought life? What we do day by day? What we read? What we watch? Is that reflection of the holy 
God that we serve. He wants us to be conformed to who He is. Not our version of what He should be, but we are conforming to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Creator, Sustainer, the Alpha and Omega. He is everything to us. Do we put ourselves in compartments? Well, I'm going to do this today. I'm going to meet. I'm going to have a Bible study. I'm going to teach. I'm going to whatever that may be. Are we not inwardly transforming into that image? This is what Paul is talking about. He's identified the enemies of the cross. He is now addressing the deeper, most valued truth in all of Scripture. These last two verses, uh, some commentators elevate these above anything in Scripture. I must say, this is a glorious passage. When we address this, we will look at it. Now, I'll give you some of the beginning portions of this just to open. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to even to subject all things to himself. The apostle focuses on the clear teaching of the true hope that we have. The goal of pursuing Christ-likeness is the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is in heaven. Those who love him should be pursuing him with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. First Thessalonians says this in First Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. We often will say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we'll refer to how much we hope and we look forward to being in glory with God. Oh, we'll have a new body. We will be perfectly sinless. All these things are true. But do we here realize that we are no longer part of the world? We're set apart. Our being a new creation, regenerated by the Lord Jesus Christ, indwelled by His Spirit, are we reflecting that? Not just to appear good, but to honor the very Lord that we claim that we love and serve. Let's go ahead and close. We'll pick that up next time. Father, we do thank you and praise you for you are a glorious God. You have taken these children who you have called and are now transforming us into the image of your Son. We give you all the glory. We recognize that it is your work from beginning 
to glorification. We want to praise you. We want to ask, Father, that you would be glorified in our lives, not just here in our midst during our collective gathering. We do want your word to be lifted up. We do want to offer song and praise to you. And we do want to leave here changed by the power of your spirit through your living word. We just ask now that you'd be glorified as we continue. We ask this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.